HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. We talk about food. About music with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello, welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one of your host, Darren Bresnett. Summer is here, which means we are heading to the farm. Sit down with owner and chef behind Corman Farms, Kieran Hales. Corman Farms is part of the legendary Ziggerman's group, which you might know for their famous deli in Ann Arbor. We talk about Kieran's teenage years in the English and European kitchens, his growth as a chef, and some of the stories that, well, probably would not fly today, and talks about his journey to the States and how he became part of the Zingerman's family. It's a great conversation. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. It's summertime, and that means we are getting out into the gardens. We head to Corman Farms to sit down with owner and chef Kieran Hales. Corman Farms is part of the legendary Zingerman's group, which you might know for their incredible deli in Ann Arbor. Kieran shares his teenage tales of being in English and European kitchens, what eventually drew him to growing his own food, and how he wound up becoming a member of the extended Zingerman's family. It's a great conversation, pitch perfect for things that are popping out of the garden. And then we're going deep, and I'm saying deep into the Brooklyn archives to hear the tropical sounds of the Colombian group, South Cathedral. It's a legendary performance, a legendary chef. And here we go on a legendary network, Heritage Radio, Snacky Tunes, sit back, relax, and enjoy.
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time out of the garden to sit down and chat with us. We really appreciate it. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for getting me out of the rain. I uh, brought my British weather to Michigan today. It is a little drizzly out there today. You know, I have to say, uh, coming from Altadena, the last few days and even last week, we had some rain. It was great mornings and I was just living in it. Um, and now it's now it's now it's ninety at at uh, at ten a.m. But I I said I'll take some gray coverage. I'll take some coziness. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for it to snow that one last time in Michigan. Got to love our Michigan weather. Oh right, with that the uh, what is it? Uh, it's like fake spring, last oh, snow, yeah. then spring. Yeah, you um, got to plant your plants at least once, and then dig them out of the ground and put them back in the greenhouse at least once or twice in the year. It's not a real uh, grow season. Well, that's how you get all that flavor, that constant stress and frustration and movement. I think it's. I think Franklin wrote about that in the Almanac, if I remember correctly. Yep, yep, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, the thing that is amazing about your career is how young you started. And I know um, it's interesting because, you know, we always get people's bios, uh, but to say that you started your career at 13 uh, is definitely one of the younger ages I've seen for the word career be associated. Normally it's like, Oh, you know, their, their mother or their, their grandfather or had to passionately pass it on. But do you really feel that you started your, your, your life's works, your journey at, at the tender age of 13? Yeah, I uh, moved to London. So I come from a tiny little village of 300 people. And I was living in, you know, the biggest city in the world, most expensive city in the world at 13 years old, working. Uh, so I did one of the last modern apprenticeships in Europe. Um, and I was there, I was pulling 16 hour days at 13 years old, uh, six days a week. And on my day off, I would do a little uh, side hustle at another restaurant in order to get employee meals. So I didn't have to spend any of my few pennies they were paying me at that point. I mean, I remember those early days where I started working in food media, sitting down to lobster or French fries or literally anything that wasn't anything coming out of my pocket. And I went, I think there's something here to this. <laughs> yep. It was uh when I started, I had actually, what's fun about uh, coming on and chatting with you is my career started as a classically trained bassoonist, right? So uh, mm. weird, weird place to begin uh, in the music world. And I was sitting at the Royal Air Force Base in London, uh, starting the first ever like air training corps band. And I was with the first bassoonist and he's like, yeah, you're going to play the same hundred pieces of music for the rest of your life. Sure. I came And I came home from that and I was like, well, I don't want to do that. And I was in a uh, music school at the time. Uh, it was paid for by a, a scholarship from HSBC Bank back in the day. And wow. uh, my music teacher's like, oh, you should go talk to the home economics teacher. She thinks you're great. And she sent me off to do an assessment at the Specialized Chefs course in Bournemouth. And I passed it and off I went. My mother was an amazing cook. And mm. I just thought that it was the best thing I could possibly do. And yeah, I passed. I was the youngest person to be approved into that program. And I moved to London, which was wild. Like coming from really uh, Bupkis, nowhere in the UK. I mean, Shout it out. What's, what's your hometown? What's your home village? My village is called Stoke Gabriel. 
Uh, on mm. my address, you have to put near Totnes because we were so small, you had to be near the nearest town. But there oh was 300 God. people. Uh, I was the only kid in my year when I first started in my elementary school. Uh, there was probably only about 300 people in the village. It was crazy small. You know, you're talking about, and you said the end of an era, the last, the last of this sort of time of young vocational work with little to no, I don't want to say it's not safety precautions, but it was like, yeah, it's just, I'm 13. I'm working 16 hours a day, six days a week. And everyone's like, uh, Karen's out there just absolutely doing it. Could you sort of give us the mindset of that time of, of why that was a path forward, I guess, a path out of your village um, and also something that was just more acceptable uh, for something that parents would even sign off of. Cause I, I find a hard press today for any parents to say, yeah, go, <laughs> go to London at 13. Uh, we'll see you in a couple of months. Yeah. I've got a nine year old. So to think my son could go live in New York City <laughs> right now would make my brain fall out. I don't think he could make it to the end of the road safely most days of the week is how I feel. Yeah. 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 Of course. So I had lost my uh, father at a pretty young age. Couple oh, of I'm years. so sorry. No, I, I, all things happen. I'm mm. where I am today because of all the things that happened in my life. Uh, it was not a good thing in the moment, but I wouldn't be here, wouldn't have met my wife, wouldn't have had my kids, wouldn't have had the career I had. And I think some of it was spurred by that, uh, is how I describe why I'd made the move. My mother signed off on it because she saw the joy that it brought in my heart. Mm. Uh, I think that honestly, I found what I wanted to do at that really tender young age. And she was 100% behind it. And she was at home in that small village with my older sister. And I left and went to London. It terrified the heck out of it. She would try to call me every day and I'd probably sure. respond once a week with a telephone call. Um, I would tell her how great it was, but I'd be coming home crying from work and living in a youth hostel in Earl's Court in London. But I still loved it. That rush of working that line was amazing. I mean, Ooh. I was standing on boxes to work the gravity <laughs> slicer. I stood inside the tilt skillets to clean them at work. There was a lot of illegal things I probably did at that young age. Uh, I'm it, sure. It's just from what you listed right there. I was like, <laughs> I don't know about this. And it was, I, I got to tell you, like the camaraderie of the people around you back then, it was the last wave of the old school chefs. I mean, right. you would get burnt on the wrist if you did something wrong. Mm. You get very heavily disciplined. Uh, I say, I speak about it fondly now. It was not fond at the time. Right. But uh, it built that bond between me and probably about 12 people that I still know to this day. Uh, they're nicely spread across the world as well. And I, I don't know. I didn't have that in my life as a child. I didn't have a best friend. I didn't have this large group of friends. I built that from that community in that kitchen, that very first kitchen I worked in. I mean, that structure, that guidance, that, you know, those figures of discipline, yeah. of knowledge, um, but also being accepted that there comes a bit of a corporal punishment when you make a mistake. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore. That type of foundation. And it's, uh, it's interesting to go at an experience like that when you're a teenager yep. versus maybe in your early 20s or even your late teens when a lot of people would finish up school and say, I'm going to go into the chef world. I'm going to go get into this more um, hierarchy of classical European, UK type of cooking. To have those fundamentals come at you at such a young age, there's no way it doesn't change your life forever. 
Yeah, I think it was very, it makes you very accepting of it. It was the only way I knew. Uh, it was sure. the first time I moved out of my house. You know, it was the first time living alone. But I'd also say, like, I, I, I said my father passed away at a young age. I was dysfunctional looking for a father figure. And, of you course. know, executive head chefs, they are great father <laughs> figures, right? They are disciplinarians. I, they are they a type shouting. of father figure. They yeah. are a type of father figure. Yeah, I found it very quickly in a lot of different kitchens. Um, it was It's made me a very different person today because I went through a lot of those very old schools. I got to work with Paul Bacuse in his restaurant in Burgundy. I wow. forever feel very privileged to do that. Um, there are loving memories that I have of some of the meanest people that you could meet on earth, and they're yet some of the kindest people when they need to be. Uh, it's of a good course. thing. It's that yin and that yang that yep. of the um... – Fundamentally, it's a service industry where you are creating these unbelievable experiences and taking care of your guests while on the flip side, behind the kitchen doors, sometimes taking it out on the people who are providing that experience. So it's 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 understandable how those two sides of a person can exist in the same executive chef. Yeah, it's like I said, the fact of having a nine-year-old, I would never, ever want him to go through <laughs> any part of it. Um, I just think that it's wild that my mother let me. Uh, I forever feel very uh, privileged that she put me out in the world and let me do it. Uh, I think many a parent, even back then, wouldn't have done it. And we're talking like, you know, mid-early 90s when that all took place. I mean, this that was really the last end of this era before people started looking at how are we treating people? Is there a different way forward? And I think it's easy. And again, I didn't experience this and I can see how you can look back and, and say, yes, it was bad at the time. And I can laugh about it, but understand that some things had to change. Some of the, some of the things are like, Oh yeah, we probably can't do this anymore. Oh yeah. Um, to individuals. <laughs> there was um, some very bad things that happened back in those days and they were not good. They're not how we should treat people and how it should I have to say it's like that generational change when you talk mm. to your uncles who's in their 90s or your grandparents, you know, they are stuck in that boat. Those chefs were stuck in that boat. They had been trained religiously in it. I was definitely the last of that transition out of it. Now, how did you make your jump out of school, uh, the, the Royal Cal Academy of Culinary Arts, into different kitchens? I know you you worked for um, uh, Paul Bocuse, but yep. – Getting to that kitchen is not just a, hey, I've graduated and I'm going to go work for old chef over there in a three Michelin star restaurant. Um, what was your road to getting into some of the top kitchens of the world? This sounds really horrible to say. It was the old boys club. And oh. They just passed me around. I would be like, I'd be on the fish station in a kitchen and they'd be like, yeah, you need to go to Munich. You've got to go to work in Tantris. You need to go work in their meat station for the next six, seven months. And then I get on a plane, put all of my bags with me and I travel and I would just move where the next head chef told me to move. I had never applied for a job in my life mm. until I had applied to come over to the United States because of visa application reasons. Beyond that, I'd been given to one chef to another chef the entire time. I was super lucky. I was, you know, when I graduated, when I finished my culinary program, I had no special skills. I was lucky where I landed. I'd been lucky along the journey. Um, lucky the people I got to work with, but it was, yeah, it was the old boys club. It's really sad to say, but it was just, a, and it really was a boys club as well. They would just pass chefs around back and forth. You know, you'd have, I'd see some of the same faces, you know, two years right. later, making right. a different circuit around the, you know, top 100 restaurants in Europe. 
did that draw you in? Because you immigrated to the U.S. in in the in the late aughts, yeah. And obviously, there's some people who went into that boys' club European system and said, "My goal is three Michelin stars. My yep. goal is, or if not that, then a bistro or some version yep. of what you would think of a stereotypical European restaurant." Nothing wrong with it, but it's just like this is what I know. This is what I trained for. This is what I open. Yep. At what point did you say, maybe not for me, or did you try it and you went, this isn't for me? I got broken with a really simple question. Uh, we were working uh, in a two Michelin star restaurant, and I was with this really senior uh, chef de party, and I was this sous chef, and we were just talking about where the food came from. And I couldn't mm. answer enough of his questions. And I could cook amazing food. I could um, plate beautiful food. I knew the process, but I didn't know where things were coming from. And I got so removed from the supply chain of where the food had come from. I took a huge change in my career probably about six months after that. Um, I went to work for a few smaller restaurants where I could be literally, you know, suppliers would be coming in the back door. And I mean, like sure. somebody, I worked in a small independent fish, uh, fish restaurant in Burnham Market in the UK. And literally, there would be these old, old old guys come with their wheelbarrows of potatoes, literally 100 right. yards up the street. And I, we would go out on day boats. We'd know where the fish was coming, the meat was coming. You would think in those very high-end restaurants back then, you knew everything about where it came from. It was a super secretive part. Until you got to the very, very upper echelons, did that information get disseminated to you? You just knew they brought the most expensive thing. You knew they brought the best and I couldn't live in that world anymore, not knowing. Mm. And it changed my trajectory. I will also say, um, living in Europe and living in that many different countries, uh, I like the American customer base. <laughs> this sounds really, really funny, but like, I love, even if it's fake, and I know this sounds terrible, even if somebody says, sure, nice okay, day, okay, I love okay. have a nice day. Yeah, tell me I want to have a nice day. I do want to have a nice day. I don't want to grunt from across the screen. And like the other thing was like we would have oh. customers when you serve them that they'd assume they knew everything about the food you were serving them. The American client base is so interested, so intrigued. Uh, it was like the new world. And it really was like to me, Charlie Trotter's uh, restaurant books when they came out in London, I remember mm. being at a catering show in uh, central London in Earl's Court when those books came out. It felt like this place where you got to explore, where customers really cared about things. They were doing the first like Rally uh, Chateau, Rally Gourmand restaurants where guests would spend a week with you in the hotel and they would spend time in the kitchen. And like, mm. what? These rich people who are paying for these Michelin star restaurants want to hang out with me too? Like, that sounds great. And that yeah. definitely felt more like it was happening over here than anywhere else. And I know, like, even as a Brit, the American dream's pretty nice. Like, I don't think mm. I would be where I am now if I hadn't have come over here. Like to get your foot in the door of purchasing something to actually be an owner. I know people who are the chef and the owner of a Michelin star restaurant and still only own 10% of their business. And right. that is not cool. Like that is not okay. Right. Um, I feel like if you're going to work that hard, you should be working that hard for you and your family because it's taking you away from your family. The American dream lets you do that over here. Mm, I love it. All right. Well, Karen, let's take a quick musical break. Uh, we're going to hear a song from the archives, and then we're going to get back. I'll talk to you about um, winding up in, in Ann Arbor at, yeah. the, at the farm, at the Zingerman's Roadhouse, and a few other things. And uh, 
Yeah, so here we go. Song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Kieran Hales. And the American Dream is calling. You have stacked an incredible amount of experience in European kitchens, going around, learning everything, and then realizing that you needed to know where your food was coming from. Why couldn't you do that? And I understand the American dream and the ownership part of it, but was there no opportunity to have a farm, be a chef, do that in Europe? Was it some type of setup that only exists in America? I think so. Like to me, I'd worked in a couple of restaurants where I tried to buy in. Uh, I had a decent amount of money saved up. Sure. Uh, thankfully, uh, my mom had taught me well to save every penny I could. And I probably gathered about 100000 dollars back then probably mm. about 120,000 pounds it was a lot of money i mean that was a lot of money for my age i was probably in my late 20s and i still couldn't buy anything in every door wow. got slammed in my face and i remember talking to a lot of my suppliers a lot of the people i was interacting with that i'd known for a long time and they're like yeah you are not going to get in that door unless you've got half a million and that's about it and it just didn't feel like there was a way out the small independent restaurants the mom and pop places they wanted to stay mom and pop. They did not want to let you in the door as well. I worked for a lovely guy, uh, Fish's Restaurant in Burnham Market. It's closed now. Um, mm. And I would have loved to have stayed there. I think the reality was that that was their whole income. There isn't a way to sell a bit of it and give you. There's only just enough to give you out uh, in right. that world. And so I think for me, I had been chatting with a guy called Randolph who owns Neil's Yard Dairy. And it sounds really creepy now, but like, when I started in London at 13, he was one of the first people I met and he would take you out to fancy restaurants. Sounds very bad in today's world. Yes, I, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. He would literally like take out commie chefs and we'd stay real connected. And I'd known him for years. He knew Ari who'd known, who owned Zingerman's and started the deli in 82. Interestingly, the year I was born, 1982. And he had said that I really needed to meet this guy. There was an opportunity that I could actually get my foot in the door and become an owner. And Zingerman's had this way to have a path to become an owner with blood, sweat, and tear equity, not just money. And I felt that really compelling way to be over here. Mm. So for those who are not familiar with Zingerman's, can you explain what it is? I mean, uh, as a restaurant, as a business model, as an institution? Yeah. So the deli was started in 1982 by Ari and Paul. Uh, they founded it in a part of Ann Arbor that was downtrodden and no one thought was a good idea. Um, they became wildly successful. Uh, it took them a while. They settled into what is a really great Jewish deli. Uh, it was mm -hmm. pretty small. They slowly expanded over time. Um, at one point, they were driving to Detroit to get their bread every day. Uh, wow. One of their employees, uh, or one of the people they knew, uh, Frank Carollo, uh, would be one of the people going and getting that bread. And they had the opportunity to make turn Frank into his own business and open Zingerman's Bakehouse and be able to bake bread. And that opportunity opened up the opportunity to have a community of businesses. So we're not a franchise. We're a community of businesses that share the same name at the top. So Ari and Paul are little co-owners of all of our businesses, but mm -hmm. we interact with each other uh, in ways that make sense. And now there's a bakehouse, there's a coffee company, a candy company, a training organization. My wife works there. Uh, we had Zingerman's Roadhouse, which is where I joined the organization, which is a full service restaurant. Uh, we've got Miss Kim, which is a Korean restaurant. 
Um, for us, the is a mail order business that ships food all around the country. Mm. Uh, it was it was started by individuals. So you didn't say I would like a bakehouse. We <laughs> found a person who's really compelling, and they want to start a business, and that is a really fun way to have that business、mm. be successful. So rather than say, wouldn't it be great if Zingerman's had a brewery? Because we don't have a brewery. Right. And no one's come along, or no one's come along and stayed long enough to make that side of that work, right? And so、uh, for us, the businesses that are there are being driven by people. And I don't want to say it, but like me and my business partner Tabitha, if we left the organization, Zingerman's Coleman Farms might not stick around.、Uh, it might be a business that's just us. Hopefully, we've created a business that there's someone in our business that wants to carry it on.、Uh, we've had some transitions of people in our organization. Uh, so Jason Restrict just became the managing partner of the Bakehouse.、Uh, that was where Frank Carollo had opened it, and he just retired. And Jason took up the mantle with Amy Emberly. That's a pretty beautiful thing to be able to be in that spot, and it creates some longevity.、Uh, we've got the support of other people to help us. Opening a business as a thirty-year-old kid, and I was a kid at thirty years old. I definitely don't feel that way now. I'm forty.、Um, I. Was very thankful for that larger support of people that have been through something、mm. similar. Every business is still new. There isn't this magic pill that Zingerman's gives you to make you successful. You go through all the same births and deaths of troubles and strife that goes on in a business as you're making it、uh, begin. I think that、uh, what it has is there's people that have been through it with you know, in a similar spot that you can lean on for help and support. You know, it's one thing to. Get into the business world. It's also another thing to have that revelation about understanding where your food comes from. It's quite another thing to run a farm for arguably one of the most famous food institutions in the Midwest, if not America. How did you go from the idea? Because I I believe you were the executive chef, and then you got into the farm. What、yep. was that transition like? Did you、yes. start with a small plot of land? Did you have a a rooftop garden, and then you just kept growing and growing and growing? So I illegally、uh, smuggled in my mother's rhubarb from her back garden when、of、I、course. first came over here. Sure, no of one, course. Yeah, no one stopped me, so clearly it was okay. Everything、sure. was fine.、Um, I started when I first started at、uh, the roadhouse as the chef.、Um, I brought over twenty three different cans of. Pure of、uh, beans and chili paste and、mm. uh, chutneys, and I wanted to do that. I didn't even want to be cooking anymore. I wanted to go into canning and jarring, and I wanted to grow the things for it.、Uh, I started to write that business model and realized that you had to make tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of those things to make any real money.、Sure. I was like, well, that doesn't sound as fun as making, you know, a batch of a thousand. That's way、no. more fun. And so <laughs> over time. One of the things we do at Zingerman's、uh, is we write visions, very powerful、mm. visions of where we want to be in the future. And so, one of the hardest things I've ever done—I'm terrible at writing my grammar and spelling—is historic. Is what renowned within the organization as being bad. I sat down and tried to answer the question of what I really wanted. And for me, as much as it was about growing the food, it was being connected with the land of where I was and be able to go to perfect. And so we do. Weddings at the farm for two people to three hundred people. We'll grow vegetables they've requested us to grow. We'll grow things that are meaningful for us. We've got people that have brought their seeds from their grandparents that came over in the Second World War that we're continuing for them. We grow vegetables for like、uh, different restaurants in the area. We've also created a community of other things that happen on the farm. We've got 
a carpenter that rents one of our businesses, our buildings for us within our business. We've got another farm that works out of the back, Tamchop Farms with us. We've got a florist that rents the space. I honestly want a little bit of a commune out there if I was given my full druthers. <laughs> wow, full commune. Uh, Outdoor yep. shower, rise with the dawn, swim with the oh, ducks. That sounds oh, lovely. Maybe, maybe not today. <laughs> maybe not today. Maybe not today. So, you know, it's great that you have such expansion in the portfolio at Zingerman's and not just you, but I'm using like the royal you, um, that you're able to grow and, and, and produce different things for different restaurants or different businesses. But obviously every, you know, you don't have infinite land. You don't have infinite resources of farming. How do you decide what to grow, how to, how to evolve, where to push? Um, and then are there things that you have to grow? Yeah, I think the things that we grow tend to be the things that other people aren't, um, the things that are more difficult. We do not, if we put Zingerman's name on a farm stand at the end of our road, we would put a lot of other farms sales down. That is mm. not our desire. We do not want to grow everything that Coleman Farms uses or the other places are. We're growing some of the quirkier, more difficult, more challenging things for us. Uh, we're growing things that our guests can interact with straight away when they're on property with us. I think for us, uh, it's the enjoyment of growing rather than having to have a high production. It isn't uh, the thing that has to pay the bills every day for us. We have a venue that we do weddings and that's the bit that pays the bills. And so being able to have that farming side of our business is the way to have that connection with the land for the guests that start their lives with us. I mean, having people get married with you is a very, very mm. meaningful moment in their lives. And sometimes we'll, yeah, we'll have planted a plant for them two years in advance, knowing Stop. that's what they want. Oh yeah. That's, that's some fun stuff to get to do. Um, and so I think the things we choose to grow uh, sometimes might surprise people how simple they are or then how complicated they are. Things that people don't want to grow. I don't know. Salsify is not something that's grown a lot out there in the world, especially for me. <laughs> it is not. I love salsify. Oh, my God. I would eat salsify every day if I could. And like, I did not think we'd be talking about salsify on today's show, but here we are talking to a farmer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> We also grow Lovage. My uh, auntie Wendy who passed away maybe three or four years ago. When we were going to the pubs when I was a kid, she would put smashed up Lovage in her brandy to make it taste good. But then oh, I yeah. learned that Lovage was like the original thing you put in your Bloody Mary. And like, yeah. who the heck knows that? And like, to me, I'm sold at that point. We're growing Lovage till we go blue in the face at that point. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. So and, do you – oh, sorry. Go on. No, I was going to say it's the stories behind them that are compelling – Again, mm. I got a nine-year-old kid, and when he comes out, it's not why you're growing this. It's more about, hey, this is Auntie Wendy's lovage. This is why we grow it. This mm. is my mom's rhubarb. This is Auntie Sue's strawberries that we've got out here. Like Those things are real. I can tell you they're not the best vegetables. There are better vegetables in this country for sure, but they sure. are the most meaningful. They taste better because we're connected with them and what's going on. Does it help that you already have a buyer? For oh, yeah. what you're growing. <laughs> oh yeah. Every day. <laughs> yeah. Um, Farming it, is hard. It is hard. I was gonna say it's one of the hardest pursuits. So it's like as you get deeper into the supply chain or the fundamentals of what you really need to to make a restaurant work, at least from the food side, it's like you get to farming and most chefs go, No, I I don't work that hard even though I just worked a 15 hour day. 
Yeah, you can tell me I'm a hobby farmer. I won't want to ever be called a farmer because those people, they work really Okay, hard. okay, I, okay. I, yeah, yeah, like I got to tell you, I mean, I came from that community. Like I said, I came from a very small part of England. It was all farming around us. When our mm. teacher didn't want to um, teach us, we would end up at a local farm planting or picking something for free on their days off. It was good for them. Um, <laughs> you might be the only one whose uh, experience there actually benefited them later in life. Indeed. I ran away from it to go to the big sure. city and then I've run back to it now. I tell you, like, I think it's that, so funny how that works, doesn't it? Isn't it? Oh, and like, I want my kids to experience it. And I've, I've, I don't know if I'm putting them in the same cycle or not. I have no idea anymore. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll probably know in about like 20 years yeah. when, when they're telling their own story as themselves as a brand and they go, my father put me into the fields at a young age and that's why I'm doing this farm of my own. I think that like watching new farms come online and a lot come and go, sadly, is mm. the naivety of what they want to grow and what it think what it means to grow something. Um, Frank Carollo, one of the bakers at the Bakehouse, uh, has uh, historically kept coming back to the same bread to make it better and better and better, right? To go deep, mm. really go deep to improve something. I think a lot of what happens in farming, we only get one season to grow a potato, right? You only get one season to test something new or to adjust it and so if it doesn't go well sometimes people move right on and don't try you know the next season to try and adjust the next place uh, or they'll grow the things that are meaningful for what they think the community wants them to grow you know the amount of zucchinis and kale that will appear on your back dock on a regular basis as a chef in a kitchen and it's like you haven't sat down and talked with the chefs you need to sit down and talk with the chefs and that becomes important do you still see yourself as a chef do you still, yeah, is, and uh, I mean, obviously you're calling yourself a hobby farmer, so I'm not going to say you went all the way to the farmer, but is it still at the core at the end of the day, you are just, um, I mean, don't kill me for this analogy, but it's like if you built your own bassoon and you're, you're playing this, you're building your own ingredients, you're, you're growing what, what your, what your tools are in the kitchen. Yeah. I would describe it better that way, that I wanted more control over the tools that I had. I could tell mm. you like. The reality of my life and the people in my kitchen and my business would tell you this. I'm like their maintenance guy. I like to change motors on oh. extraction fans that have gone bad. Like I've got to take something apart and make sure that it's really broken before I can move on with my life. Like I'll redo tiling. I'll do some plumbing and some electric later in the afternoon. I'll jump in the pond to change the sump pumps that are in those. Like to me, it's all one in the same. If you don't understand all those moving parts of a business or the life cycle of that business. And I mean that as all the moving parts of like a body, then you're not really owning the whole thing. And I like that the staff can see me downstairs dealing with a plug toilet, outside dealing with the veggies or cooking, you know, a seven course meal for very highly guests in the very same day. Wow. I mean, that's great. And it's great to see that you've touched every tacit of it. Um, so what are the moments like now? when you've 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 grown something you've grown over a couple seasons it started out as something that wasn't perfect but you perfected to it and then you've taken that ingredient and made it a new dish new drink or something like that how often are you getting to see the customer experience and then also learn about what they're eating it is almost 
weekly, which is mm. kind of the best thing about what we do is not being a restaurant in that we're a event space, right? So sure. we get these very close connections with these people. Half the time they want us to come out and talk about the menu. And so I get to literally interact. And we're in an open kitchens. I've got a, mm. a farmhouses from like 1837. It's completely open to the guests to walk in and interact with us. We sometimes have their kids help us pick the vegetables for their crudite boards. Uh, sometimes they'll come out and help us weed or plant things months before their weddings. I mean, they get to experience the journey with us. We have people that don't want us to do that, and it's a very transactional relationship, and that's okay. Fine. Fine. But you get these other people that are like family to us now. And mm. uh, our family has grown over the last nine years of Corman Farms being there. We have farm babies now, right? Like there are these Aww. families that have grown up with us. Um, we've got a vision that goes out a hundred years for the trees that we want to plant. We talked about our Christmas tree farm that we want to grow out there. So my kids have something to do to pay for their college because it might not be the money that I'm making. <laughs> so I, you I you probably make art more of a Christmas tree in America than a potato. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say uh, on a one-to-one ratio. I'll, yeah. I'll put it that way. No, I think that those connections are why I love what we do, the things that we grow. And so when you ask like, that thing that comes all the way through, I got to tell you, I'm still always disappointed. There's always that growth growth potential mm. of making it better. Um, one of our sister businesses is very into Toyota Lean principles, like continuous improvement. And it's mm. completely burnt my brain forever. And so like continuous improvement is there's always better and you can never sit on your laurels. And that's like being the eternal apprentice chef in a kitchen. Um, right. And I love that feeling. Like to always be naive, to always know that you don't know and that there's no win and i always thought there was a pinnacle to get to in the industry like you said at the beginning about becoming a three michelin star chef sure it's not true <laughs> no michelin, I, i'm with you when marco handed back his michelin stars marco pierre white handed them back and said nope don't want those i want to go run a pub that's trying to get connected with where things are and i think those things are the way we as people need to define ourselves and not by the accolades that come with things i've seen too many people get their accolades mm. and that bubble is burst and there wasn't anything you get really excited about having it and keeping it but then there's nothing it's kind of hollow when it comes at the end yeah yeah well look i think you're doing it for the family and for the farm and just uh for your passion and it's your life's work and i appreciate you sharing some of those insights because it's just it's really inspiring uh, if people want to learn more about the farm or even come out to visit or, or order anything from the farm, where can they go? How can they, they get, get connected? Yeah, this is where my marketing department comes after me with knives, right? Um, you want to go to zingermanscoremanfarms.com. Uh, there's a shop there. We make English pies. Uh, it was one of the only traditional foods in London. Uh, there's all of our information. There's recipes on there as well. If you end up on our Instagram, our Facebook, we've got cooking videos from my house that we share, things mm. that we love and passionate uh, COVID taught us a lot of things that we could record those things and find the time. We find no time now that we're back to busy. Uh, but yeah, come to our website, come out, come see us. There's nothing stopping you. We've got you know nearly 27 acres for you to romp around on the farm. Amazing. Well, Karen, thank you so much. One last question. Uh, what's your bassoon playing like these days? Do you ever get back to it? <laughs> uh, my son, I think, is better than I am. Mm. <laughs> he can he can still play it, so that's good. I probably only get back to it maybe three or four times a year. Uh, I rented it out for free to somebody that needed it a couple of years ago, and they gave it me, back to me fully finished. So all the corking, 
all the keys had been refinished for me because it had been been through the wars a little bit back in the day. Oh my god! Well, listen, thank you so much. Congratulations. Hopefully, get get my family and I out to the farm one day next time we're we're uh, over in your part of the world. We have another song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HRN.org. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. 
Saul Cathedral, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you guys for coming in. Thank you. Super excited to have you DJing the barbecue as well. Yeah. Uh, I want you to introduce yourself, say what you do in the band. Uh, my name is Nicholas. Uh, my name is Juliana. Cool. And you jam. Yeah, we're, both of us, we're, we are the band. We are the band. We are the band. Uh, how'd you two meet? Everything. Uh, we met in Boston while we were in college. B ten. Where'd you go to school? B-10. Berkeley. Berkeley College oh. of Music. I went to BU. Oh. oh. Yeah. yeah. Did you eat an oh. honest taqueria? Yeah, of course. Okay, great. <laughs> All right, cool. See, everyone, everyone <laughs> eats an honest. Yeah. Don't trust someone who, went, who lived in Boston and didn't eat an honest. It wasn't that good, though. See. Ooh. I did eat there, but it well, was Well, thank you good. so much for coming by. Um, all right. How did, and how did you two meet and start uh, writing music together? Uh, we had, like, classes in common. So we started, like, um, we met each other um, and just uh, yeah. doing some ensembles. And we're, uh, bo- we're both also, like, from the same place. We're both from Colombia. We grew up, like, ten blocks from each other. But you didn't meet and till we Boston? we met the same people, went to the same, like, college in Colombia, and we never met. Are so you the same age? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. One year. Yeah. Man, that's so that's so crazy. I mean, how how uh, big is the scene in Columbia that you could have missed each other? Well, it's an eight million people city, but uh, we we did work. Well, we meant, were like, in the, the same n- scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we totally could have met. Like, yeah. I knew some of his friends. He knew some of my friends. So, huh? Right place, right time. Yeah. So when did the um maybe like the first kind of like uh, etchings or inklings of Salt Cathedral kind of start to come into uh, reality? Well, um, it was maybe two, three years ago we started touring uh, all across the U.S. And then we started writing in New York. We came from Boston to New York to write a first EP. And then from now, from there, like, we, we took it seriously. So we started, like, producing and writing and just touring. Is it all self-produced? Yeah. Uh, yeah, completely self-produced. That must be nice. You can be on the road in a hotel room and just be like, let's bang out a song. Yeah, yeah exactly. Computers, um, yeah. Yeah, computers, man. You're making music anyway these days. Yes, yeah. uh, let's hear, actually hear a song. Uh, yeah. Sure thing. What do you guys want to play first? Uh, this song's called Holy Soul. Oh, okay, great. All right, Soul Cathedral <coughs> here live on Snacky Tunes. Yeah. 
Oh man, that's great. That is awesome. Um, so you guys are uh, working with the uh, Latin Alternative Music Conference this week. What are you doing with them? Um, we did um, a couple of shows Tuesday, Wednesday, nice, and Thursday in New York. In New York, cool. Uh, Wednesday, rough trade with the um, this guy from Tijuana called Maria Jose. And then we played with Denver, the, from Chile. Oh, nice. Wednesday, we did our own show. And Thursday, we were doing some light shows for this Colombian band called Balancer. Light shows? Light show. Yeah. You were doing the lights? Yeah. yeah. Oh, How did? When did you start running lights? Uh, what is your light show game like? It's, it's synchronized with the music. Yeah. And well, uh, basically, it's just a bunch of strobers and a lot of colors. And a lot of fog. We have, yeah, like, yeah, we have what's our, fo- we what's have our fog rig, game like? you know? We have, like, a fog machine, like, <laughs> tons of lights. And we have these, like, installations through which we like project lights like two big moons we one day got into it we're like we need to set up our own vibe whichever room we go into so i think we i mean we learned that so now we're like our friends are like can you do lights for us so do you control it so like is your whole show also controlled the lights everything controlled by you from stage it's uh it's midi synced that's fine. But when we do it, we control hold on, when we do hold it. Hold on a second. When you, you just said MIDI sync, like, that's not, no, like, like, that's not okay. Pre, no, no, no. Like, it's pre, pre-synced. No, no I understand, know. but that's still very uh, yeah. impressive. It's okay. still, uh, you know, actually, I wish that you could sing and run the lights uh, manually. I just, yeah, I, that would, I would be more impressed. Yeah. I would be more impressed. Um, that's so awesome. That's just, like, a, a really great way to know that no matter what venue you go into, it's yeah, just going to be your you vibe. You set up a, a mood. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Go no, on. No, no, I don't want to, don't, I don't want to be disrespectful. Was, no, it's okay. Um, so I know that you've been on tour recent, uh, recently. Where are some of your more favorite places to play around the country? Austin. Uh, <laughs> in, in the country? Yeah. Uh, or we can say world, if you want to go global. I think our favorite place to play was Japan. Japan. <laughs> okay. Why was that? Uh, because of the food. The, uh, the food, yeah. What did you guys eat? And the crowd. Tonkotsu everything. <laughs> no, everything, everything. It was, it was really nice. And uh, especially... They know how to party. Really? Oh my yeah. god! Really? They party yeah. till like seven yeah. and keep drinking and keep drinking, keep drinking, and then they eat ramen at like eight. <laughs> but it, I don't say no problems intense. with that. No problems with that. So now your blood is like one part blood, one part sake, one part yeah. pork fat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was there like anything in particular that like obviously everyone's like oh ramen, but one particular food that you had that you didn't know existed previously that just kind of blew your mind? No, it, it was more like for example, the we had whale. Okay, and that's illegal here. So yes, that was, <laughs> how was it? It was good. I, it was really fatty. Could you see why? Never mind. That's such a, like, I'm not eating that. That's such a bad joke. Um, all right, do you guys want to play another song for yep. us? Uh, what do you, which one's this? It's called Good Winds. Cool. Oh, 
Awesome. So now you guys are working on a new record. Uh, yeah. How is this going to differ from the previous release? Um, better songwriting. <laughs> oh. Better it's production. More influenced, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's more influenced by like more Latin rhythms and like dance music. Awesome. Yeah. How do you uh, make better songwriting? Just doing it. Yeah. Just practicing. Yeah. Study other more people songs. who wrote better songs than you did. Who are some of your influences? Or who have you been studying? Johnny Mitchell. You're the second person to bring her up this week in like an influential uh, way that I would have not expected. Yeah. One of my coworkers sent it out, like, listen to this on Monday to be inspired for the week. So I can feel huh. that. She's, yeah. a, she's amazing. You yeah. can't get tired of her. Well, the thing is that Johnny Mitchell, did, she's like really creative like with her forms. Mm-hmm. You know, she adds like two bars and somewhere else. And uh, she was doing a lot of like pop songwriting with influence with jazz. And he, she was doing a lot of stuff like that, you know. And she's like... He had, she had different eras, you know, so you can you can learn a lot from their records. They're so different. Do you have a particular talking. Joni Mitchell song uh, to point people to? For sure, a case of you. Okay, oh, yeah. yeah, that's the obvious a, one. A classic, <laughs> a classic <laughs> one. All of Blue, I think, is just mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we want to make sure you got, we have time for one more song. But where can people come see you play live this summer? I know you just got off a slate of shows, but tour local um not right now we don't have any shows right now but we're always like putting them up you know they yeah. sometimes come short notice because we're like in new york so if they follow us on instagram we're always like on there telling people you know like we play at rough trade babies love babies like, love a babies. lot of babies I love, I love babies it's the best place it really they really they really nailed it they really yeah they've they been they're friends i've been here before i really feel like every time there's a show there but they're also one of the places like what am I doing this week? I don't have any plans. I'll just go to go babies because you know be one of those or four, or two of those four bands on a bill are going to be good. Yeah, or the DJ, or just the bar. It's yeah, always, yeah, it's always fun. That yeah. Uh, yeah, when that screen lowers down, the whole place turns into a dance yeah. party. It's such a good time. I one last when I when Dan Deacon played there and they just opened up the windows and just turned the whole place into oh. like everyone's like this is the they designed it so well. They did a lot of little tricks. And no. the lights are the lights are amazing. The lights are incredible. Uh, well, thank you guys. And if people want to come see you DJ, they can come to the bar. On Tuesday night. If you just go to heritageradionetwork.org, you can see the poster. Thank you to Contra. Thank you, Slash Wild Air. Thanks to uh, Jay Strell. Thanks to Brian uh, as well for helping set this up. And uh, thank you so much. Shout out to Joe. Shout out to Anna. Love you too. Yeah. Shout out to Summers in Berlin. Summers in Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One last song before we got to get out of here. What do you got for us? It's It's called called No Ordinary Man. It's from our upcoming record. All right. Unreleased. And we'll uh, see you all on the uh, Diamond Records bow party tonight. Yeah. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.